St. Leo 360, a 360 degree overview of the St. Leo University community. Hi there and welcome to another edition of the St. Leo 360 podcast. This is Greg Lindbergh. On this episode of the podcast, we are featuring a recording from a recent virtual event that we held here at St. Leo. And this was on the topic of women in sports. And I think you'll find this to be a very thought-provoking, very interesting uh, discussion here. I should mention that this event uh, was held in recognition of National Women's History Month. In addition to the Recharge with Reading initiative uh, going on here at St. Leo University. And uh, this was a collaboration among academic affairs, athletics, as well as the Daniel A. Cannon Memorial Library here at St. Leo. So I'd like to turn it over to Barbara Wilson, who is the Assistant Athletic Director for Sports Medicine here at St. Leo University. Barbara. All right, so we're going to get started. We're doing um, a presentation about women in sport uh, for National Women's History Month and have with us um, Caitlin Hansen, our women's lacrosse coach, and Emma Crafton, um, who plays on our women's lacrosse team and has a great lacrosse background. And then Danae Williamson, who is the associate professor for sports business. Um, so um, I am going to let these guys introduce themselves, and I was going to start out with Emma. Go ahead, Emma. Hi, um, I'm Emma Crafton. I'm a senior goalkeeper and captain on the St. Leo Women's Lacrosse team. Uh, I've been playing lacrosse since I was eight, uh, and I'm studying history with a minor in criminal justice here at St. Leo. Awesome. Caitlin? Thanks, Barb. Uh, my name is Caitlin Hansen. I'm the head women's lacrosse coach here at St. Leo. This is my fourth season here. Uh, prior to moving down to Florida, I was a, a head coach for four years at a Division three school in Providence, Rhode Island called Johnson and Wales University. And before that, I was an assistant for three seasons um, where I played, and that was at Bryant University, which is also in Rhode Island. Um, and before I went to college, I grew up playing um, a multiple, multiple sports <clears throat> in New Jersey, um, but definitely happy to be on this tonight. So thanks for having us. All right, thanks. And Danae. Hi guys, my name is Danae Williamson. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Good, um, I'm associate professor here at St. Leo. My career started at the University of Miami when I moved to Florida. Uh, to get my master's degree and I worked in the athletic department there and then proceeded to work at the United States Tennis Association for a few years. Um, eventually I landed back in Florida after teaching at the University of Missouri and starting their sport venue management program. So I've had a well-rounded career. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the 1999 Women's World Cup. Uh, and the reason that I picked this is I am totally a product of the Women's World Cup uh, kind of run in 99 and everything that uh, led up to it and, and followed. I um, It was the summer before I started eighth grade in 1999. And, and so uh, this was a big kind of pivotal 
time for me. And, and I don't think that I would be where I am right now um, as a coach or certainly not had an athletic career that I had, uh, had it not been for this. So I'm going to give a little backstory on that um, and kind of talk about some of the legacy that um, this particular event and the women who played in it uh, ha have left for us. Um, but I'll start with kind of how it all started. Uh, so I mean, obviously Title IX was passed in 1972. So a lot of the women who were part of this event were the kind of beneficiaries of, of that law because um, the first national team was started in 85 and definitely your typical um, kind of thrown together uh, a group. Most of them are wearing like hand-me-down uniforms from the men's team that they're trying to, you know, sew together and make fit before the first match. Um, they didn't do so well initially. Uh, and then the US, uh, US soccer made a big investment and hired Anson Dorrance, who was who it was and still is the head coach at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, and, and this group went on to compete in the first ever World Cup. Uh, that was in 1991. Uh, and they were able to win that. And a large amount of the players in that 91 World Cup were um, kind of the, the veteran players in 99, but they were teenagers uh, at the time in 91 who had grown up. Yes, they were competing on boys teams and yes, they were um, still facing a lot of adversity, but they had the opportunities. They had the opportunities that the people before them didn't really have um, because they were born right around the time that Title IX passed. So um, coming up through prior to, so they had the, the World Cup in 91. We competed again in 95. We did not win in 95. We finished third. But the kind of big momentum shift for, I think, women's sports in general was that we hosted the Olympics in 1996. That was in Georgia. Um, and this photo here um, of the team is with their Olympic gold medals. We won gold in 96. Uh, and that really started some momentum. Uh, the big thing being that the games were on well, they weren't completely televised all 90 minutes. They were definitely cut up, but I definitely remember watching them. And, and the big reason why was they were in normal time slots. It wasn't like the Olympic games that you watch where they're starting at one in the morning or they're starting at you know one in the afternoon and everybody's in school. Uh, it was super helpful that it was in a normal time slot and that we won. So that kind of spurred some momentum leading up to okay, where are we gonna host the 1999 World Cup? And as you can see in, in kind of this newspaper clipping, that was about it. That was the, the amount of attention that we got that we were hosting in 99. It wasn't a front page headline. It was kind of like a side column. Um, and if you actually read the text, it wasn't super enthusiastic. It was kind of, well, we're hosting because nobody else is. Um, and I do remember, I actually had a scrapbook of all the different newspaper articles that came up around this time. And most of them were centered around the fact of, well, what if we host this World Cup and nobody comes to it? That was kind of the big fear. Um, our men's soccer has not performed traditionally really well on the world stage. Uh, and you know we had the momentum from 96, but people weren't sure if it would actually translate into fans in the stands in 99. Um, so they went to a really grassroots marketing uh, campaign and they made the commitment that, you know, we're going to make it work and we're going to host this event in big venues. We're not going to use college stadiums like they had originally planned. They were going to use big venues like Giant Stadium, um, Foxborough, which is now Gillette Stadium. They were going to play in Chicago. They were going to play in Washington, D.C. And the final was going to be held in the Rose Bowl. So that was a really big commitment. 
But to kind of make that happen, they needed some help along the way. Uh, and fortunately, people like Billie Jean King really stepped up. The picture, the first picture you see is Julie Foudy in the black shirt, who was one of the Team USA captains at the time. Um, and she became good friends with Billie Jean King because there was a lot of external forces they had to deal with, uh, like legal, things that had never been an issue before because they had just been playing soccer. And now they were trying to make something of this and create something with it. So she, um, Billie Jean King was a, a huge force for them, imparting her wisdom from having kind of blazed her own trail essentially by herself um, earlier in women's tennis. So, so she was a big proponent for what they should be doing behind the scenes. And, and one of the big things was getting out there and talking to people. And I was fortunate enough that at the age that I was, I was able to go to their camps. They were so accessible. You could watch their practices. And I mean, we're, we're obviously times are very strange now, but how many professional teams are you able to just sit there and sit on a field and, and watch them compete? That's not something you'd be able to do today. Um, but fortunately, in the late 90s, that was something you could do. And they stayed after and they signed autographs and they really did a great job of marketing themselves as, you know, a family event. And they decided they were going to package the tickets. Every game was going to be a double header. So if you went to one game, it was a true day experience. You got to see two games. And I was at the opening game at Gillette Stadium or at Giant Stadium growing up in New Jersey. I went with my dad and we watched two games and it was awesome. The U.S. won and they had filled the, at the time they had filled the stadium with 70,000 people which was the most people at the time that had watched a women's sporting event. Um, that number was later shattered with the final. Um, but that, that campaign, that getting out there and just being ambassadors for the sport really started to gain some traction. And then it got bigger traction when sponsors like Gatorade, McDonald's, Coke, Dunkin' Donuts, they started featuring the players. And the ultimate advertisement that I I still remember watching the whole thing was when Nike decided to do a anything you can do, I can do better uh, commercial with Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm. And that really put them on, on a national level and, and they were comparing who was at the time the greatest goal scorer in soccer history, male or female, to the greatest basketball player in uh, in history at the time. So it was a really cool kind of boost. And it definitely made people want to know what was going on and decide to go to these games. And they bust in, you know, loads of soccer, youth soccer teams, male and female, to go watch these games. Um, so it, it turned out to be an awesome event because it ended, well, one with the U.S. victory, but it also ended in the Rose Bowl with over 90,000 people in the stands um, and over 4 million people were watching it um, live. And it was July 11th, I, I just still remember it. Um, and I was definitely somebody who was watching that game live and it went into overtime and then it went into penalty kicks. And then in what's probably the most remembered and certainly iconic image from the day, Brandy Chastain, who's the, the image you see on the right of the screen, you know, ripped off her shirt in celebration. And that was on the cover of basically every magazine um, because everyone was just like, it, it was an awesome image and it was one of victory. And I think that it was totally one of relief too, because all of these women understood that if they didn't win, it would have been for nothing. Like there was the added pressure of, okay, well, we have to get fans here which is enough pressure and enough outside work, but then they also had to win it and they had to play. And on this particular day, it was over a hundred degrees. And they not only played the 90 minutes, they then played the full amount of extra time and had to shoot the penalty kick. So I don't think it could have been more dramatic, um, but it, it definitely lasted, it made it a lasting impression. Um, and the effects of that 
we still see them today. Um, our women's national team kind of had a slump for a little bit and they weren't able to win gold for a while from 1999 to 2015 when they won again, there was a long drought. Um, we won some Olympic gold medals in there but the World Cup is kind of the highest thing there is in women's so in soccer in general. So that we won in 2015, then we won again in 2019. And a, a large reason that we were able to stay on top was because post 1999, we started the first women's professional league in the USA. It was called the WUSA. Um, it folded after three seasons, but it gave people an opportunity to understand how a league would work and to get, have an opportunity to be professional athletes. Uh, and I think it influenced other leagues like the WNBA and certainly U.S. hockey. Um, and, and now the NWSL is kind of the main league. And that's been around for a significant amount of time with branches in, in various um, various parts of the U.S. And, and international players come to the United States to play in it. But it's keeping soccer alive and it's allowing and it's allowing players an opportunity to train year round. But the ultimate, I think, culmination, the coolest thing to me as a, as a coach and someone who's super invested in women's soccer is a large amount of women decided they were going to invest in a club called Angels FC, which is a new um, club that will debut in 2022 in the NWSL. And the whole leadership board, the whole ownership are women. Serena Williams, Serena Williams' daughter, Eva Longoria, um, Natalie Portman, Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, some of the big names from the 99 team, they're all really giving back to the sport to kind of continue what they started, which was making sure there was a future for female athletes in the United States uh, in this sport. And so for me, I think this is just the absolute coolest thing. Uh, and I think it's a great illustration of kind of this full circle moment that all really started um, in, in 1999. Uh, and it had been, you know, years in the making. And I think when it finally debuts in 2022, it will probably be the start of of more more things like that to come. Uh, and I think that there's, if we're talking about women in sports and, and kind of women's history, uh, for me, there's no more impactful moment in women in sports. And, and certainly the history here is really rich. So uh, I was excited to get a chance to, to talk about it tonight. I couldn't agree with you more. That was a great, great game and certainly change things for women in sport. Okay, Emma, you're up next. Are you ready? Okay, so uh, my PowerPoint was about uh, my senior thesis paper, which was about women in sports um, and sports history, because that's kind of my area of expertise and study here. Uh, so my paper was um, Gender Politics, Inequalities, and Female Empowerment in Women's Sports. So uh, the second half of my paper was really focused in on comparing the fights of the United States uh, national soccer team, uh, the WNBA, the Women's National Basketball Association, uh, and just kind of comparing and contrasting and seeing all that they have to fight through and put up with. Uh, there we go. Okay, so historically, there has been a struggle for equal pay, equal treatment, and non-biased media coverage in women's sports um, and for female athletes, like personally. Uh, and this is due uh, essentially to male homogeny, poor marketing and perceived disinterest, which leads to um, minimal media coverage. So it's kind of like a cycle. And much of the media coverage that these athletes and these female teams do receive is through a super heteronormative uh, lens. So it kind of puts them in a box of like, you're a female athlete and the emphasis is on the female here. Um, and so both the United States uh, women's national soccer team and the women's 
uh, National Basketball Association, the US, USWNT and WNBA have consistently been two organizations whose athletes have been pushing for equality from day one. Um, and they both uh, have incredibly successful male counterparts, which really makes it evident that you can like see how different the media coverage and the pay and everything involved in it is because the, you can just easily compare and easily see what the, how the men are treated. Um, and actually within these two teams, there is differing media coverage as well because of the makeup of each league. Uh, the USWNT uh, is more white and heterosexual presenting uh, compared to the WNBA, which has a lot of people of color and a lot of um, non-straight athletes. Um, and so the reason I chose this topic is because I am a female athlete um, and I feel like this is pervasive in society. Sports are super important for the future development of girls and women. Um, and female athletes are no different from their male counterparts in terms of talent and hard work. So media coverage and pay shouldn't be an issue there either. Um, sorry. Okay. So Megan or females was a firsthand account of like the coverage that the U S women's national team and the WNBA get because, um, she is dating Sue Bird. And when the WNBA had their uh, finals in the bubble, she was there the whole time with her. So she really got to experience the lack of media coverage and like the difference between her team and their team. Um, and a lot of it is because she recognized that there are a lot of women of color in the league and a lot of open, uh, LGBT members on, uh, the U S uh, or on the WNBA, sorry. Um, and then I had another uh, source that talked about how um, how and why there is um, inequality and uh, a huge pay gap between the WNBA and the NBA. And it's um, mainly due to poor marketing for a majority of the teams. Um, and they market the sport, like um, female women's basketball, they market it as really family friendly, which they don't do for the WNBA at all. The WNBA, they really emphasize like the bad boys, the hardcore athletes, these tough guys. And then the WNBA is all about oh yeah, look at these women, they play basketball and they have families and it's like the basketball is kind of secondary and they're marketing to women and children who aren't always like the primary like sports viewership, like they don't really market towards men at all. Um, so they're really missing out on that. And um, there's also been a lot of mismanagement of the teams. Um, two teams, the New York Liberty and the Washington Mystics were both at like the major stadiums, uh, like the Mystics are from New York and they were playing at Madison Square Garden and they weren't selling out, but they were like filling out up to an, enough capacity that they were selling out of tickets. Um, and the Washington Mystics were also in a large stadium um, and they moved both of them to smaller stadiums further away from the city, like more in the suburbs. So then of course that tanked their sale, their ticket sales and their viewership. And um, yeah, so just another inequity there and mismanagement. And then um, my last one was actually an analysis of the US women's national soccer team wage and gender discrimination. Uh, and it just was examining why there's uh, a wage and gender discrimination in US soccer, FIFA, and then uh, National Women's Soccer League as well. Uh, and it's because there's like a differing pay structure and salary for the National Women's Soccer League and the US Women's National Soccer Team, which kind of messes up the way they have to collectively bargain. And it's often compared to their collective bargaining agreement is often compared with the US men's national team collective bargaining agreement. But like the pay structures are so different in regular in the regular soccer league that the female athletes have to like on the US women's national team have to like make up for that within their collective bargaining. So they're on a completely different like pay structure, whereas the men are on like a, a pay to win. The uh, female athletes are on salary. And so there's just always an argument about that. And um, all of the national women's soccer team players are on 
the regular like club teams, like the football club teams, and they don't even get paid from the club team. They get paid from U.S. soccer and FIFA themselves because they know that the pay structure doesn't work and there's not enough money. And um, the U.S. women's national team makes $46,000 a year or less playing for the regular soccer league, um, the NWSL. And then some of those players in the NWSL are making as little as $16,538, which is just above the poverty line. And that's all they'll ever make. Um, so that's an issue as well. And then just some analysis and conclusion. Um, oh, so the WNBA has um, jersey sponsorship and they've led the way in that. Um, and so jersey sponsorship is really common in international sports, especially like soccer, but in American sports, it's really not common, but the WNBA started to use it to make up for like a lack of profits from media coverage and like television deals. And that then turned into the WM, the NBA wanting to have it like the WNBA, but the WNBA has had it for seven years. Um, so they kind of led the way for that, but unfortunately it was like for a bad reason because they just need more revenue. Um, and then pay structure is different than the U.S. men's national team and the U.S. women's national team, as I explained. Um, the WNBA and U.S. women's national team are two of the most progressive uh, leagues in speaking out for social justice causes. So both of these teams have like spoken out about Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ rights issues. And the WNBA in 2020 dedicated their whole season to social justice and Black Lives Matter. Um, and with that, because of the COVID-19 season, they still saw a viewership increase um, of 63% from the 2019 season because of an increase in the number of games televised. So in a way like COVID kind of helped them because they were like, well, we need to put sports on TV, sports, sports, sports. And even with that, with their increased media coverage, they were still competing against the NBA finals and the World Series and they still saw an increase. So that was like really awesome. And it just showed that when you put women's sports on TV at like regular hours, people will watch it and like don't put it behind like a crazy paywall. Um, and then um, the U.S. Women's National Team also were really outspoken on pay inequity um, and they filed that lawsuit, um, several lawsuits, a couple of them have been struck down. Um, and like, there's just a lot of inequity perpetuated by U.S. soccer and FIFA. So it's not just in America, it's like international. Um, and one example of that is the 2019 World Cup prize money for men was $400 million compared to the women's $30 million. Um, and they claim it's because the women's team just doesn't make enough money, but it's just, if you put it on TV, they'll make the money. It's ridiculous. And there's been like a bunch of studies that prove it. Um, and then both the WNBA and U.S. Women's National Team are outspoken supporters of LGBTQ plus rights. The WNBA has pride games. Um, Sue Bird and Megan Rapino are both one from the WNBA and one from the Women's National Team that are really outspoken about LGBT rights. Um, and then the WNBA 2020 season did have record high viewership um, because of the record high number of games being televised on major television channels. So, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that. That's amazing. Janae, are you ready to go? Yeah. Hey, guys. You know, I am at the Lightning game right now, and the Lightning is actually LGBTQ night um, just by chance this evening. I think I'm going to take a little different route. I didn't put together a presentation. I really wanted to focus on a bit of, I think my motto that I received from a good friend of mine is that, if you can see it, you can be it. And my focus is really getting women involved in the front office for sport organizations. Um, and it is truly a male dominated world. 
But again, I think that the mentors that you can find for yourself, the people that you surround yourself and the people that you work with are truly going to assist you with development within the industry. Um, we all obviously can't be professional athletes. So for those of us that still want to be involved in sports, this industry has tons of opportunities and there are truly some great role models um, in the front office that we can surround ourselves. Um, probably one of the biggest and most important things is to truly continue to work together and uplift each other as females in the industry. There's a number of organizations that, you know, people in the industry can join. One of them is the um, um, Wild Women in Leadership. And I can't remember what the D stands for, but it's part of the um, uh, facility management industry. So getting yourself involved in organizations on a national level is super helpful. And I want to just say that I went into teaching because I didn't see enough females in this industry. And I worked hard to surround myself with good people when I did get those jobs at the University of Miami, the United States Tennis Association, and made a true point to learn from women working in the industry. So I think I've definitely taken it a different route as far as um, women in, in, in sports and in industry and working in um, different facets of the industry. And again, if you can see it, you can be it. Uh, reaching out and finding someone to look up to, reaching out at different organizations and seeing the females that are involved in the front office staff of those organizations. We all wanna help each other. And all it takes is an email and better yet, a phone call. So finding someone that can bring you along uh, we are, again, everyone that I've experienced in the industry has been very welcoming along that facet. So uh, thus the reason why I teach uh, sport business. And I hope to be a person that can be, uh, I guess, a push for us females to become more involved in, in the industry. I know uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are really doing a great job at hiring women. Yes. I'm, not, I'm not really sure about the lightning, but I the obviously lightning, with the Super Bowl and everything. Well, the, the lightning are, you know, just as amazing of an organization as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We're fortunate that at St. Leo, we have some alumni working for the organization uh, for the Bucks. The Super Bowl committee is a different entity. It just so happened that the Bucks made it into the Super Bowl this year, which was great for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, not so much for my Kansas City Chiefs, but it, it is definitely a way to see different facets and what happens in a city when a big event comes into town. Um, but I think the biggest thing is not to be hesitant to reach out to people. If you go to a specific organization, you see someone that might fit a role that you wanna look into, send them an email, make a phone call, send a thank you note and start the line of communication. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I have some questions for you guys. Um, Caitlin, I'll start with you. What do you think can be done to continue to increase visibility for women in sports? 
Yeah. No, I think that's a, a really good question because it's one women's lacrosse specifically. We have meetings every year about how our sport in particular can get more visible. Uh, we're still a growing and evolving sport. Um, but one of the challenges we face is there isn't enough airtime allocated. Um, you know, I think even a sport like women's women's soccer, the WNBA, that do have fan following and people do know about, they're kind of snuck in there in between uh, or at, at odd hours. Um, and I think that it, what's, what's an awesome thing that's happening for college sports is that most networks, like for example, us, the Central Network, like during games for free. Um, and I mean, I almost hope everybody's there to make money, but it'd be really helpful if, you know, big, the Big Ten, Pac-12, some of these really big power conferences could let people have easier access to them, maybe not charge like $16 to do a game. Um, but I think that putting, putting it out there and whatever platforms are available, I think social media has been awesome for visibility um, because not only do I see the clips from all different sports on there, um, but it also starts a dialogue. You see some of these players, there's two freshman standouts right now in women's college basketball. And people like LeBron James are tweeting about them and tweeting at them and or, or making comments on Instagram posts. And I think Kobe Bryant started a lot of this by playing attention to women's sports because he had daughters. And I think, you know, dads that have daughters, putting that out there uh, ha has been great to keep growing the sport. Um, but I think as much as we can in the public eye, whether it's little clips or, or full-length games, um, it's going to keep building and growing some traction. Uh, and then it just starts to kind of go viral from there. Um, but I do know that it's a big conversation we have every year at our coaches convention. What can we do? How can we maybe even simplify some rules? So when people are watching a lacrosse game, they're not as confused by all the whistles. Uh, and I know that's conversations they have in other sports too, in different ways. Um, so I, I think just giving us the opportunity to put it out there, because um, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with Professor Williamson. If you can see it, you can be it. You don't know what, what you're capable of if you can't see people doing it. Um, and I, I'm certainly, like I said, a product of being able to see people doing it. Um, so I, I think any possible source we have is what we should be pursuing to get to get games and get athletes out there. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Emma, what are your thoughts on what happened with the um, basketball tournament this year? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I actually saw, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar, like, but with TikTok, um, and that's exactly, that's actually the reason, like, it really got out there super fast and super prevalent. And I think that's an awesome way, like, another way to use, like, a free media app for um, college athletes, even pro athletes, and, like, um, especially like athletes who aren't necessarily on a team, like singular sport athletes, like lower level tennis players and stuff like that. I think it's a great way for them to spread the word and get out there and really promote themselves in their sports. Um, but the uh, original video from the girl, uh, the woman Sedona uh, Prince from Oregon Women's Basketball, I actually had seen it on TikTok like that day that it happened before I'd even seen it anywhere else. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's just insane. And so I think that was great that her and a couple of her other teammates and like other girls from other teams were then able to like pile on and say, look, it's not just the weight room. It's the food. It's the hotel accommodations. It's the like gift packages they're giving us. It's like the time that they're giving us to spend with our teams. None of it's equal. And you can easily see that because the men's side was just as much posting on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. So it's not even like the NCAA could like try and hide it. And the fact of the matter is that they tried to say it was because that they just didn't have enough space. And then they 
prove that they had space. And then they said, oh, we're staying at a different hotel. And they're like, we're literally staying next door. Like they are essentially the same hotel. And if we're not getting equal accommodations, like you're violating title nine and we'll file a lawsuit. And it just, uh, one of the coaches, I honestly can't remember what team, but she said, it's just, you had three weeks to show how much you cared about the women's basketball. And you just showed that you don't care. It's all, it's an afterthought. It's always been an afterthought. And like, now these girls are stepping up and using their voices and showing you just how much of it, like injustice this is. And then there was another video, I think also from TikTok of the, the son of the people who run the NCAA basketball tournament. Like they're just strictly for the basketball tournaments. And he was trying to say that the reason why the women weren't getting equal accommodations and stuff was because they don't make the same amount of money when they're on TV. And then a lot of people were like fact checking him and saying, look, this is a nonprofit organization. Like they have title nine for a reason. They can't, that doesn't matter. They can't be doing that. And you can allocate the money from the men's tournament and split it with the women's tournament, or you can put the women's tournament on TV more. Like they're really simple fixes. And the way that they really just threw it together and like thought that they were going to get away with it is just like the same thing that has been happening and it's the reason why we have title nine and the fact that we even have to have title nine is also another issue so it was just like a culmination of everything I've been researching happening and like just ridiculous it was really upsetting but I was super glad that they were able to speak out and like actually get things changed and hopefully next year they won't even have any issues like that. Yeah absolutely obviously we're talking about history and sport and hopefully you know, next year or in a few years, this will be changing history in, in some of those sports. So we can cross our fingers for that one. <laughs> Danae, um, how about you? Did you have any role models um, that influenced you when you were growing up? You know, I played basketball and then I played college basketball. And I think we're all familiar that we're missing the uh, South Carolina with Don Staley, who wrote that letter. Uh, that was just referenced and Texas is playing right now. Um, I was fortunate to have very supportive people and it was really, I had no idea that a career in sport management existed until a uh, friend of mine, their brother said, oh, you should go look at sport management, which I had never heard of. And I think from that moment on, I was able to think, go, wow, there, I can buy myself a little more time by getting my master's degree. And there's a career in this growing up in a small town in the middle of Missouri, where is, which is where I'm from. Um, you know, you, you're just kind of a little bit limited again, that was, I'm going to age myself before social media, before cell phones, before the internet. I know it's hard to believe, but I think that finding out that there was a degree program that was another step to become and receive a specialized degree in this area was huge for me. Then my mom dumped me off in Miami and I was more than culture shock, but I was fortunate that my very first boss was a female, uh, Stacy Bunting Thompson, who is now associate athletic director at Princeton. Uh, she was at University of Miami. She really took me under her wing and showed me what a great boss should, should be like that. And being able to work in the industry. And then I thought, you know what? I want to do something for students such as myself and being able to go back and um, sort of represent from an academic standpoint. And maybe I'm not a boss of anyone, but I love surrounding myself with my students and seeing their successes. So 
I don't want to consider myself a role model by any means, but I think when we surround ourselves with good people, good bosses, and that helps you lead by example, um, even the even the poor experiences you might have will still be treated as a learning experience, but being able to surround yourself around good people has been huge. And I would say my biggest role model over the last 20 years um, has been my very first boss at University of Miami. And she has climbed the ranks and she's amazing. So yes, absolutely. That's great. Yeah, and I, I look back at my history in sport, I'm, I'm older than all of you. And um, I thought, I, you know, I guess my parents did a great job of never making me feel like I couldn't do anything because I just, I, I never felt like, oh, I'm a female and I can't do this. The only thing I really wish I could have done was played ice hockey because that really wasn't available. So in my next life, male or female, I'm going to be a professional ice hockey player. But other than that, um, you know, I still played hockey with my brother. I had hockey skates my whole life, you know, and I, I did other sports and then even getting into my profession, you know, I'm, I'm um, the athletic trainer at St. Leo and SWA, senior woman administrator for those listening that don't know what that is. Um, but yeah, I just never felt like being a woman held me back. And I guess that came from just my upbringing of never feeling like it should have. So um, and I need to thank um, our librarian here, uh, Doris Van Campen, for putting this together. Um, and I was going to ask her a question if she's available to answer and what started her interest in sports and why she wanted to put this together for us for tonight. Well, my, my interest stems back way back to high school. And um, Barbara, I'm probably closer to your age than anybody else's, probably Todd older even. And um, I started playing volleyball at a small high school. And um, up until that point, I never thought I was athletic. And that just kind of really changed my life and gave me a lot more confidence. And I've been a big women's and really sports in general uh, fan since that time. I kept playing sports uh, of some kind, mostly volleyball, uh, really right through my 30s and 40s until it, you know, until I got too slow. <laughs> But um, I really still love watching girls grow and seeing how sports opens their eyes and their um, abilities and their confidence. And you don't get that with a lot of other things for girls. It just really is amazing to me how much and how quickly they can grow when they're involved in a sport. Absolutely. I, I mean, obviously we all are big big in athletics and we want to support it. So um, I think that's great. Any final words from anybody before we close this down? Yeah, I just wanted to say this was wonderful. You guys all did a wonderful job. I'm glad I was able to attend. Um, great job. Um, I just want to make a comment to Emma. I'm a little bit older than you. And I went to, um, I did see a Liberty game at Madison Square Garden and being someone who grew up in the 70s and 80s, it was great to see Rebecca Lobo there. Um, but to see guys wearing girls' names on, or women's names on their jerseys and it was packed. And I was like, this is amazing. It was like really eye-opening, you know, to have that, that, um, that much attention and people gathering to see women's sports. It was fantastic, but um, 
yeah, that's all I wanted to say. And also I'm kind of sad that they moved the, the venue. That's that kind of um, shows something right there that we have a lot to go as far as equality is concerned. Thank you guys. Yeah, it's super unfortunate, but that's really cool. You got to go to the games. I actually have uh, a WNBA like vintage Miami Souls uh, hat because we used to have a WNBA team down here. It was like super before my time, but I really wish we had a WNBA team closer because I would like love to catch some games and stuff, but maybe it'll come back around. That's been an issue too, is how often they change cities. It's been a real big issue for marketing and stuff too, but that's really cool. You got to see it. And I know the mismanagement is just ridiculous, but they got a new overall um, head commissioner or whatever uh, for the whole WNBA. So I'm hoping she'll like really like lock it in and get it together. Cause she's a little younger and like more with stuff. So, but that's super cool. Oh, I hope so. Thank you. All right. Well, I appreciate everybody's time and putting stuff together for us. I think this is a great way to end um, Women's History Month. So thank you very thank much. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much for presenting and for coming. Much appreciated. To hear more episodes of the St. Leo 360 podcast, visit stleo.edu forward slash podcast. To learn more about St. Leo's programs and services, call 877-622-2009 or visit stleo.edu.